Uh, I'll just send you the book. Books I don't need. A fucking four-barrel shotgun is more like it. Hello and welcome back to Morningside FM, the podcast where we talk all things Phantasm. Now, this episode is a little bit different. It is something of a crossover episode, because when I'm not skulking around the gravestones of Morningside Cemetery, I also co-host A Book at Breakfast, which is a monthly book discussion podcast with my very good friend Mark Charlesworth. Uh, We discuss one of our favourite books over one of our favourite breakfasts. It does exactly what it says on the tin. And for this episode of Morningside FM, we are, at long last, discussing the legendary, the the, the semi-fabled phantasm novelisation by Don's mother herself, Kate Coscarelli. And so, as this episode is to be a book discussion... Who else could I ask to join me other than my Book at Breakfast co-host, Mark Charlesworth? Mark, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. And uh, I'm wearing an unusual hat today. It's not the Book at Breakfast hat bedecked with pages from literature and sausages (laughs) tucked beneath the brim. It's the Morningside FM hat with a little antenna and a gravestone tucked beneath the brim. Yeah, I was imagining uh, sort of Angus Scrim's top hat in the uh, in the, the animated photo in the antique store, but no, a, a gravestone hat. Yes. Brilliant. So I'm sure the listeners can guess, because often when I bring somebody onto this podcast, the answer is always the same. I'm going to ask you anyway, even though I know the answer. Uh, how did you discover Phantasm and when? I discovered Phantasm from you, Chris. Shock horror. (laughs) I think we were about 13. We were. The perfect Uh, age. Yeah, it is. It is, yeah. Um, A friend of mine recently said, uh, referring to Stranger Things, actually, Mm. um, that with teenagers plus horror, you can't go wrong. That's so true. It is, yeah. yeah. Um, And I guess... Your whole life, in one respect, is being shaken up and has become uncanny by puberty and yeah. by impending adulthood, mm. which in itself is a bit of a horror movie. So I think 13 is the perfect age to be discovering horror movies. Um, but we were um, we were at my mum's old house. Yes. Uh, yeah. And you'd come round and it was uh, one of those long summer days mm. that um, seemed to go on forever when you're that age. And I've always felt that said, Phantasm is a summer film. Even yeah, it is, film, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, and you brought it round on uh, a chunky VHS, yeah. which I imagine you were very proud to own. It was a pirate copy at that stage. Oh, I was it? Yeah, we rented it and pirated it. And I don't know if you remember, um, we, we had sort of two... VH, uh, mm. VCRs with scart leads running from one to the other and you could make a copy but it had these sort of bizarre lines around the side of the screens <laughs> that looked uncannily like the original Doctor Who opening credits you know, oh, William Hartnell yes, sort of I swirling do remember that. Yeah. And, and it, what I only learned recently well I say recently it was 10 years ago in that uh, Mark Gatiss an adventure in uh, space and time um, they achieved that effect on Doctor Who by pointing the camera lens down its own um, monitor. Ah. So it's like visual feedback. Oh, and now I realise we were making a copy of a tape by plugging one 
VCR into another. So I think it's actually a, a similar a feedback loop. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, but anyway, sorry. Yeah, so I brought uh, a clunky uh, pirate VHS round to your mum's old house. And um, you asked if I wanted to watch it. Um, we Surely were off... I didn't ask. Surely I just well, insisted. I think you did insist. <laughs> but we were off school and so was my younger sister. Oh, wow. Um, and I don't know if my memory of this is right or not, but I seem to remember that my sister wanted to watch it with us. Right. Um, we were about 13. She's three years younger, so she would have been 10. And you said, oh, I don't know, it might be a little bit scary. <laughs> and I think she did watch it with us and thought, what was scary about that? That was completely yeah. ridiculous. That sounds right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because I could see how a 10-year-old would look at it and they would see scenes like I the, would have found it very the giant fly yeah. um, well, and and find it ridiculous. Oh, yeah. But so, at the same time, I found it really scary as a 13-year-old. Mm. And maybe what's scary at 13 isn't what's scary at 10. Maybe you almost need a sort of understanding of certain quite adult metaphysical con concepts in order to find something scary that you might not have a handle on at 10. That's I know a really there's only good three point. years difference, but it's no, a big difference. And it's in a terms of especially phantasm, as has been remarked elsewhere on this podcast, you know, is a coming of age horror mm. with a 13 year old protagonist. Um, and again, in terms of what you were saying before about adolescence being its own horror, there's a body horror element to yeah, it. Yeah, there is. But I think more significantly, like Kevin Lyons and I were discussing, it's about that penny drop moment of realizing that you're going to die one mm. day. And, you know, you don't have that kind of existential despair at 10. You no. barely have it at 13, mm. but it's the creeping beginnings of it, you know. Ah, well, I think I did have it at 13. Well, for um, obvious personal yeah. reasons if you if you want to go into them it's interesting i picked up on this when i was listening to the uh the one with you and kevin and oh, yeah. he said young people are carefree yeah and don't think about death until a certain age mm. but because i'd had a brain tumor when i was 12 and i've mm. been through surgery and radiotherapy and it my life sort of seemed like the pages of um actually this isn't a very on point reference anymore but it seemed like the pages of the mechanical animals booklet and right, yeah and and for a while it seemed like uh its own kind of horror movie which sounds very melodramatic but it no i understand that and even like your bizarre radiotherapy mask was yeah. something straight out of a horror film yes that could have been in phantasm you and could your picture blood somebody doll. lying on the slab yes and henry the blood doll they give they give kids uh a, well let well, you did. explain yeah so, certainly in this hospital I was in, um, there was an old lady worked there and she made these um, these strange white soft toys uh, and I wouldn't call them teddy bears. They were kind of <laughs> man-shaped but kind yeah. of a bit wonky and they looked a bit like the Pillsbury Doughman. A stuffed doll yeah. with a blank white face. They were quite sinister. <laughs> a bit terrifying. And the face, it was the shape of the person, but the face was drawn on in pen. And I used to have to redraw it every few months because oh, it I would thought, fade. I thought it had come blank. I thought you just drew the face on. <laughs> no, it had the, <laughs> it had the face in hospital. And they were for um, showing children where the needle would go when they were taking blood. So they were wow. called blood dolls, yeah. which sounds like something from voodoo. I'm surprised we didn't start a band called the Blood Dolls. <laughs> a good name, wouldn't it? Henry um, and the Blood Dolls. 
Interestingly, I was talking about Henry last week because I donated him to uh, a gallery yes. and I want to write to them to ask where he got to. <laughs> How is he doing? Yes. <laughs> Has his yeah. face rubbed off yeah. yet? What was his fate? <laughs> but yeah, you're right. And I think that's one of the reasons we connected. I don't know mm. what, what my excuse was, but you were you were very, very serious and very maudlin. <laughs> uh, and so was I for absolutely no discernible reason. So we instantly became best friends yeah it's interesting isn't it i, I was talking to my mum about this yesterday um and i you know i think we were probably destined to meet yes. and become best friends anyway but there was something about that experience of me being ill and then coming back to school you were the only person that i felt on any kind of wavelength with and I often say I felt like an adult in a child's body mm, because mm. my condition made me look like a child and I wasn't developing at that time. But because of what I've been through, I felt like an adult. And so I did have these sort of concepts of death. I yeah. had this idea that had this thing that had been found in me not been discovered, I would have been dead or irreparably brain damaged. And that was with me at a very young age. And maybe that's why... I actually found Phantasm quite terrifying yeah, when I first saw it, which seems that. in some respects maybe a bit laughable now when no, you look I, at I things. Don't, I don't think so like, at all, because, you know, in, in the film, the character of Mike isn't ill, but he has this this existential dread, and, mm. and he's, you know, he's aware of the fact that he's going to die one day, and he's terrified of it, so I completely understand how you'd it would resonate with you mm. on that level. So... I may be asking this too soon in the episode, but it feels it feels natural uh, because I've asked uh, everybody else so far about what the tall man, who they think the tall man is, and what the tall man represents to them. So, as as a twelve year old boy who'd who'd had this this brush with his own mortality, and then watching Phantasm at thirteen on my clunky pirated VHS, <laughs> what was your reaction to the character of the tall man? What did he mean to you? I think my reaction then and my opinion now of what he is is a little bit different. Mm. Um, I think when I was younger, I saw him as the personification of death. Mm. Um, And everything about him was cold and creaky. And the way he walked, it was like his limbs didn't quite bend. Mm. And you imagine that if he did have to bend his knee, it would bend with a creak. And yet he was supernaturally strong and he could lift this coffin over his shoulders. Um, And he seemed purely the thing that would uh, hasten us towards the grave, um, probably before our time, uh, for whatever sinister purpose... uh, he wanted but in terms of making a kind of informed opinion about him now with time to reflect on mm. this in adulthood 23 years yeah. of well, reflection yeah, yeah i i now think he is as much sex as he is death and oh, that's interesting like a really strange thing to say because you don't look at Angus Scrim as the tall man and think, oh, whoa, that character is pure sex. No, but you look at his alter ego mm. and perhaps think that. Um, next episode, I'm going to be chatting with Zoe Swan mm. again. She's coming back to talk about phantasm through a feminist lens. Mm. And yeah, I, spoiler alert, we've already recorded that episode, so I may <laughs> allude to some of the things we say. And that's one of the things we talk about, that that motif of, of sex and death. Mm. Uh, but it's interesting you say that, um, because 
again, you know, I've, I've spoken to Mary Wilde uh, and Kevin Lyons about the tall man, and we've talked about the tall man as the personification of death. And, uh, you know, Mary had that, that great point about him being, you know, the antithesis of sex uh, and, and how, you know, Reggie represents the, the, the life force in opposition to uh, um, the tall man's death drive. But I've actually... Uh, already had some listener feedback mm. uh, for some people saying, you know, that's not true for everyone. Uh, some people find the tall man very attractive. Mm, and right. um, in that sort of Dracula vein, you know, mm. the kind of the dark, seductive figure. Um, so it's really interesting that you should say that. Well, I think it was uh, you that put across the points a while ago, uh, before this podcast was even a twinkle in your eye. <laughs> that um, a lot of the themes of phantasm are once uh, you sort of hit puberty, mm. you realise that your body is irrevocably changing. Yes. Yeah. And you start to come to terms with the fact that you're not going to be here forever. Mm. Um, and I was thinking that the tall man and the Lady of Lavender are perhaps equals. And our film perception is very much on the tall man's side because you only get yeah. a few fleeting glimpses of the lady in lavender yeah whereas the majority of the time that that's kind of character that double mm. god goddess whatever mm-hmm. you want to call yeah. it is in it we're seeing the tall man but there's a sort of in my head now there's a narrative that happens off screen where the lady in Lavender is going around creating just as much havoc as the tall man. Yeah. And she's going around seducing people and bringing them out of childhood into their sexual awakenings and puberty to start the journey. Setting them on the path of death. death. So to me, the tall man and the lady of Lavender... Sort of interchangeable. ...are the constant companion that accompanies us once we hit puberty and we start to come to terms with the fact that we're not going to be here forever... And in a weird way to take this a little bit further, they're a little bit like in the Philip Pullman books, mm. the way uh, everyone has uh, an animal that accompanies them. And when they're, they're a child, they're it soul, changes yeah. to kind of fit whatever they need yeah. in the moment. But when they hit puberty and sexual awakening, their demon, their familiar, their mm, animal mm. that accompanies them sets and it becomes one set thing. They're on this irrevocable path. Yeah, wow, and that's yeah. The, they're on the pathway towards... Uh, from sexual maturity to, to death. death. Wow. What a, what a brilliant interpretation. I love it. Mm. The tall man and the lady in lavender are love, love sisters. Yes. <laughs> now that might not make sense to you, but fear not. Uh, all will be explained. Uh, now, of course, we are ostensibly here to talk about the phantasm novelization. Mm. Uh, and as I alluded to before, uh, both Mark and I are huge fans of, of Doctor Who. Um, so the word novelization uh, gets us excited. Just <laughs> even We're English, so we should spell it with an S. But it's one of those words where you really want to put the Z in because it's like a, like, <laughs> like a ray gun, like something's been novelized yes. oh, <laughs> by, I like by that. the novelizer. <laughs> uh, and it was quite common, uh, in certainly in the 70s, uh, for films and sometimes TV serials to be novelized because if people miss them at the cinema or when they're on TV, it was harder to, to see them again, you know, with um, before streaming and even, especially if you, if you were in a different country, videos could be hard to get hold of. And sometimes even if you could get a VHS, it would be, uh, you know, a censored version or a <laughs> cut version. And um, 
prior to making Phantasm, I don't know if this is connected, but in my head, it is. Prior to making Phantasm, Don made a film called Kenny and Company, which, funnily enough, was also a sort of coming-of-age film, but in a very different way to Phantasm. And uh, one of one of the actors, one of the child actors in that film was a Michael Baldwin, who went on to play Mike in Phantasm. Um, and I don't know, I don't think the film did particularly well uh, in the US, but it was really big in Japan. Oh, right. I didn't um, know that. Yeah, and I think... There's a great bit in Don's uh, memoir where he talks about he was only like, you know, 23 or something ridiculous. And he had to chaperone all these children basically on this promotional tour of Japan, <laughs> one of whom was a Michael Baldwin. So I think, you know, they, they've had a, a, a firm bond for, for many, many years. Um, but apparently he was a real heartthrob over there. The, the Japanese teenage hey, Michael girls. Baldwin yeah. Don. No, no, Michael. Um, <laughs> the, yeah, the uh, teenage Japanese girls and presumably boys all loved him. Oh. Um, so I believe Phantasm was a big hit over there too because right. he's like, oh, it's the new A. Michael Baldwin film. Um, and so Don's mother, uh, Kate Coscarelli, that's her, her, her pen name, her real name, Shirley, um, she went on to become an incredibly successful romance novelist. And I think that was a, a passion she'd always had writing, but had never got round to it. And, you know, we've talked elsewhere on the podcast, I think, about how uh, Kate Coscarelli was very much the unsung hero of the, of the, especially that original Phantasm film. She did so much. She did sort of hair and, and makeup and catering and costumes Um you know, all under different uh, pseudonyms uh, on the credits. Uh, so I, I don't know how this novelization came about, but because she'd always had this desire to be a writer, she offered to to write a novelized version of Phantasm. Uh, and I don't know if it was intended for a world a worldwide release, uh, but for a very long time, it was only available as a translated version in Japan. Uh, it wasn't published in English until 2002. Oh, wow. Yeah. And um, I remember discovering the internet when, when you know most people didn't have computers at home when we were teenagers, or if mm. they did, they didn't have a modem. It wasn't easy to get online. I remember I used to go to the local library and pay a pound for half an hour online and go on phantasm.com. Uh, and it was so exciting, that website back in those days. You probably, I, I probably showed it you at the time. I remember even printing off some of the web, web pages. I think and you the, showed me the printouts. Yeah, and there was a whole section called the Tall Man's Mausoleum. Mm. Uh, and the, the wallpaper on, on that screen was like the Morningside marble. Uh, and there were all, there was stuff about the cars on there. I downloaded instructions on how to embalm a corpse, which is <laughs> what every 13-year-old boy should be doing. Um and on there, they posted uh, a little article about this novelization. Uh, and there was there was a sample of it on there as well. And um, and again, Kevin and I in the, in the last episode talked about the fact that the you know, original cut of Phantasm was, was three hours long and it was trimmed down. And again, this was way before DVDs or YouTube or anything like that. So I was yet to see a single deleted scene from Phantasm. And for me, as a young fan who was just obsessed with this film, you know, every frame of it was was almost like sort of a hallucinogenic drug to me. I was uh, the idea that there was more phantasm out there was was it was incredible. It was so magical and yet so tantalizing. And so they posted the first few chapters of this novelization online. And I think the web page is even still live. The link wow. to it on the Phantasm site is long gone. 
But the, the, the sample is still out there. And I remember it so vividly. It was sort of bright, bold, white text against a, a, a jet black background. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading it and and there was more. There was more information, more backstory to the characters. And I was so intrigued by, by this novel. Uh, but it wasn't available anywhere. And then in later years, I realized that... Um, there had only been 500 copies printed of the English translation and it come out in 2002 and they were all sort of individually numbered and wow. signed by Don. Uh, and I found one on eBay in about 2008 for a hundred pounds. <laughs> and I thought I can't pay a hundred pounds for a book. That's ridiculous. Uh, and it went. And then the next time I saw it on eBay was on US eBay and it was for seven hundred dollars, oh <laughs> and I bitterly regretted not buying the hundred pound one yeah. when I had the chance. Um, and so for me, this this book was kind of like a holy grail. Um, not necessarily because I hope this doesn't sound unkind. That there's a, there's an afterword in the uh, in the two thousand and two English reprint or print, I suppose, an afterword by Stephen uh, Romero, who says that, you know, him and Don put this book together uh, and Kate Coscarelli sadly passed away in 1999, Mm -hmm. uh, as I said, having enjoyed immense success as an author. Uh, But they said if she were alive today, you know, this was the first book she wrote. and I think she she developed her style a lot. She learned a lot um and if she were still alive today there's no doubt that she'd want to go through and revise it and rewrite certain bits and 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 they said we've tidied it up a little bit but we thought we didn't want to rewrite it we want to just almost you know preserve it as it was as a kind of curio and it's it's gorgeous it's even printed in the style uh of a sort of 70s pulp paperback novel like you you would have got at the time uh because Many, many, many years later, I finally managed to get hold of a copy. Um, and, you know, it was literally 23 years from reading those sample <laughs> chapters and wanting to know what happened next. Obviously, I know what happened next. I've seen the film. I've seen the film many, many times. <laughs> As I say, it's, you know, with the best will in the world, it's not great literature. It's not the best written book in the world. But that, for me, that wasn't the appeal. The appeal was that it was extra phantasm. I could read this book and know more about the Pearson brothers and know more about the town that they lived in and maybe even know more about the tall man. And, you know, as I say, this book, it really was a kind of holy grail, an obsession. I would scour uh, the internet endlessly trying to find copies of it. And when I'd given up trying to actually buy a copy, I was trying to find any information about it I could on sort of obscure blog posts and and reviews and uh and then once i saw this very very strange book on ebay uh and it said it was a a novel and it said phantasm one and two but there was there was there was no information accompanying it and i'm even uh, took a screenshot of it and and tweeted don coscarelli and said what is this is it real should i buy it it was about you know twenty dollars or something but i didn't really know what it was uh and then my very good friend, Zoe Swan, who was with me uh, for episode two, talking about phantasm and funerals, uh, bought it for me for Christmas one year. And it turns out it's a bootleg Russian translation of Kate Coscarelli's phantasm novelization, published side by side with a, a novelization in Russian of phantasm two by a mystery author. Um, 
So it was kind of tantalizing because on the one hand, I had in my hands the phantasm novelization that I'd been searching for for two decades, but it was in a language I couldn't read. It's beautiful. It's a gorgeous book. I'm holding it now. And in many ways, this is one of my favorite things (laughs) about the Phantasm franchise. Me too. The artwork on the cover, which depicts two of the uh, The dwarves, dwarves, is so creepy, but also a little bit goosebumps It's very goosebumps, yeah. And it's got this amazing picture in the inner sleeve of the red planet with one of the dwarves crawling on its yeah, belly. I think it's supposed to be uh, the scene from Phantasm 2 mm. where where Reggie falls through the fork and it's crawling up to his face. Mm. But it's gorgeous. And it's also got these wonderful illustrations yeah, of black and white almost yeah, and there's that. You've just opened it on the title page. I mean, mm-hmm. I assume it's the title page. I can't understand a word of what's printed there. Well, the fact it's written in Russian makes yeah. it seem like this kind of holy artifact. It's almost a bit like a kind of treasure that Indiana Jones would find. Very much so. It feels like occultic... it could have been buried under the sand yeah, in the desert. Yeah. And but that's strange script that if only you could speak the language, exactly, yeah, we... you would draw up some strange incantation. Yeah, and... we, we need some sort of Rosetta Stone yeah. or, you know, a Russian translator. But that, that just to go back to that title page that you had open, there's a picture there of presumably the tall man. It looks like <laughs> Angus Scrim, uh, but he's wearing a top hat uh, and he has a kind of, almost zombified face mm. and it really reminds me though there, there was a video board game that i was obsessed with in the in the early 90s called atmosphere do you remember uh, it? Uh, i'm I think sure we played it together everyone knows yeah, atmosphere yeah. surely yeah. Uh, if we did play it together yeah, yeah. if you're listening uh, in australia it was i think it's actually an australian game it was called nightmare in australia and Phantasm, of course, was called The Never Dead. <laughs> Everything's different in Australia, <laughs> which I always find endlessly intriguing. But yeah, uh, the second Atmosphere game was hosted by the, the zombie Baron Samdi. And he was this sort of guy in zombie makeup with sort of mad wisps of grey hair and a top hat. And that and it's like a mashup of Angus Scrim and Baron Samdi. What year would that game have come out? Because this was oh, 1993. 93. So you know I wonder what? if the person that did this was inspired by that. Yeah. 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 And maybe they couldn't they couldn't find an image of the tall man, so they uh, <laughs> they got atmosphere instead. There is an author's name on the spine in Russian. <laughs> there it, was, is. it says M Onayapek. Um, it's very even so, even the title. You can tell that it says phantasm. Mm. Uh, there's a sort of what looks like a P and mm. A H T A. A backwards three, which presumably is a sort of, uh, you know, a Russian stylized S, M. Would you post a picture of this cover I will, on yeah. one of the social media things? Yeah. Because I think it has to be seen. It has to be beheld. Yeah, but at the same time, I even like the idea that that we're describing this wholly improbable and bizarre thing. <laughs> because it's sort of like, we, we know that we've got in front of us a phantasm novelization, but it may as well be on the red planet as far as we're concerned because yeah. we can't read it. So uh, there's possibly even an extra layer of magic going on in the listeners' heads at the moment, just trying to imagine. Well, that's true. And I mean, it doesn't even have a publisher's details no. or a barcode on the back. It looks like it's homemade. And for some reason, <laughs> there's a picture of Jesus Christ being crucified on the back. What does that mean? <laughs> I almost wonder if, if this was some sort of like labour of love for somebody. Mm. They just kind of had this artwork lying around that they'd done and thought, well, that will tie in. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, it, you think when you die, you come to heaven. Yeah, yeah the crucifixion. Yeah. <laughs> there are crucifixes in Phantasm. Why not? 
I'd love uh, to meet the person that did this. I think it is a beautiful <laughs> thing. I love it. Uh, you know what? Maybe it was Kate Coscarelli. Oh, well. Yeah. Uh, so I was so... Da- I, you know, it was, it was kind of like having uh, a gold coin in the lining of your jacket pocket that you know is there, but you can't get into... You can feel it, but you can't get it out. So on the one hand, magical, but on the other, immensely frustrating. <laughs> I'm holding the phantasm novelization that I've wanted since I was 13, but I can't read it. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, come on, this is the future. There must be a way. Uh, so I downloaded an, a Google Translator app. It's quite remarkable, really. You hold your phone camera you set the language, you hold your phone camera over the page, and not only does it give you a translation, but it's really bizarre. It's like it sort of takes a picture, but you see the words change before your eyes. It's it's like something uh, out of Phantasm, you know, like the, the <laughs> that we mentioned before, the, the the animated picture in the antique store. It sounds like something out of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It does, it does actually, yeah, yeah, sort of a visual Babelfish. Uh, now. This is not the ideal way to translate a novel. In fact, some might say it's the very worst way to translate a novel, <laughs> relying on software. Um, but I didn't have uh, a Russian translator to hand. Uh, if anyone's willing to tra- <laughs> send us a message and I'll send you some screenshots. Um, but what is... So I think it's safe to say, it's fair to say that the, the, the version that we got from Google Translate is slightly bizarre. And that's okay, because things are always lost in translation. But I suspect, because this was published in 1993 in Russia, um, and I'm saying that, do we even know that it was published in Russia? It's well, we don't know. I mean, do we know for sure this is Russian script? Well, Could I, this be yeah, another... I, I, I set the translate software to Russian uh, okay. and, it, and it identified it. So I feel yeah. vaguely confident it's Russian. Um, but... As I say, this was published in 1993, uh, and an English version of this novel wasn't officially published until 2002. So I think that the Russian version of this book has been translated from Japanese, and then we've used Google Translate software (laughs) to translate it back into English. So I'm going to crack open a cold doseki while Mark reads you... um, the opening section of what may or may not be Kate Coscarelli's phantasm novelization. Life and death always walk side by side. They are like love-love sisters. No matter how much each of them looks down on her partner, vainly declaring, the whole world is me. There is no life without death. There is no death. And they were created as a couple to leave without life to nudge each other. Light and darkness, dream and reality, reality, etc., are also inseparable. The list is endless, and, as a vivid confirmation of this, in the old cemetery of the little-known, earlier I would say forgotten by God, town, under the bright name of Morningside, perhaps the most vital of life scenes took place. Since ancient times, people have put the words love and life side by side. But the moment of intimacy of love, its idea and culmination, even if the feeling takes a few minutes, and having received satisfaction, the man and woman will part forever. Tommy was sure that his love was real, 
Flashing suddenly at the sight of the stranger, she turned out to be so strong that he could not believe in her near end. Well, he thought, following his chosen one, at first sight. Their relationship developed quite rapidly. From the moment of their meeting, not even an hour had passed when both were on the ground, and the silent trees listened to the heavy but sweet groans for the place where eternal rest should have reigned. Eternal rest should have reigned. Mm. It's bizarre, but it's really quite beautiful. I find it quite beautiful. And eerie. And uh, again, you can tell certain things have been somewhat lost in translation and certain sentences maybe end more abruptly than they should. And there was that line, uh, there is no life without death. There is no death. Do you think that should have said there is no death without life? Because that kind of harkens back to what you were saying about the lady in Lavender, Mm. sort of the idea that she is seducing people because she, you know, on the one hand, in the sort of death and the maiden sense of, of their duality, she is, is, the maiden she's she's life she's fertility but like you say she's just the other side of the coin that sets them on the path towards their inevitable demise you know there is no death without life i always wonder with this scene with tommy if you were to read it very literally and kind of go with my interpretation about the duality of the tall man and the lady in lavender is Tommy losing his virginity in this scene? I mean, actually, yeah. I should probably elucidate because I'm not entirely sure it's clear from what I just read that that's what's happening. But <laughs> in, this, in, this, in this scene... We assume that's the opening scene of the movie. <laughs> yeah. In this scene, at the beginning of the movie, at the beginning of Kate Coscarelli's um, English novelization, mm. it starts with um, Jodie and Reggie's friend Tommy being led into a graveyard to have sex with this mysterious lady in Lavender. So that, I think, is what's being described in this translation of the translation of the translation. Yeah. So is Tommy having his virginity taken by the Lady of Lavender, falling from grace and childhood and meeting his death all as one? Is it a summation of the entire journey of puberty to adulthood to death crystallized in one scene that is so poignant and beautiful and and worthy of that very very poetic uh interpretation of phantasm's opening scene uh and i'm not saying that it isn't a direct translation of kate coscarelli's novel Mm. because you know it's been through many processes we assume it's gone from english to japanese from japanese to russian and then russian back to english via google translate software but the um the actual opening chapter of Kate Coscarelli's phantasm novelization bears very little resemblance <laughs> to the the, the floral, um, almost introspective nature of uh, whatever you just read. Um, is it fair to mention Garth Marenghi? Garth Marenghi is one of the few authors who, who has written more books than he's read. Uh, but one of the books, quite possibly the only book Garth Marenghi has ever read uh, is Phantasm by Kate Coscarelli and chapter one uh, goes like this Tommy Masterson couldn't believe his luck he'd stopped in the Dunes Cantina for a beer and there was this babe sitting at the bar she had long blonde hair and a pair of tits that would knock your eyes out she kept looking his way there was no question she wanted to talk God he murmured to her <laughs> sorry <laughs> I'll try again I I <laughs> was at absolute pains to read all my bit with a straight face. So. <laughs> God, 
he murmured to himself. That was less than an hour ago. And here he was, flat on his back, with that girl, half out of her lavender dress, grinding away on top of him. He looked up at the girl, writhing and gasping as she waved those gorgeous knockers in his face. <laughs> Sorry. And suddenly, he could retain his passion no longer. As he... Ca- <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> can't do it. It's yeah, appropriately came- enough, it's put us back in the mindset of being 13-year-old yep. boys. <clears throat> As he came, his tender organ stretching and straining inside that strange and marvellous cunt, she too seemed to reach peak and descend. Lying quietly on the grass at Morningside, where she had held him, Tommy closed his eyes in contentment. You were great, baby, he murmured, as the limpness spread throughout him. The woman, whose painted face and glittering eyes showed no lessening of tension, waited only a moment, then drew a knife from somewhere behind her and lifted it above him. Quickly, she sank it as hard and fast into his heart as he had plunged his body into hers. And then a hell beast ate them. (laughs) Sorry, that for anyone who doesn't know, that was a reference to uh, an English comedy show called Garth Marenghi's Dark Place uh, about a horror author. More of which are non, I Yeah, hopefully, yeah. Yeah. Certainly on a book at breakfast, but Mm. let's not... uh, Let's not... uh, Descend into madness. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I, I think I prefer my version of yeah. the two readings. <laughs> uh, and another thing about the translated version uh, that I find really sinister, again, I think it, it, not deliberately so, it's just a, a consequence of a very literal translation and again, something being lost in translation, but the tall man is referred to as long, mm. just capital L, like not even the long man, just long. Mm. Which is really quite horrible. <laughs> it makes me think of the Slender Man. The, uh, exactly, yeah. Have we talked coming... about the Slender we Man? We haven't, no, no. Oh, interesting, right. And that idea Although of... that was... Do we need to give any context there? I'm sure everyone knows what Slender Man mm. is, and I'm sure everybody... I'm sure everybody who's listening to a Phantasm podcast knows mm. that the um, the artist, I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head, but um, the person who actually invented Slenderman has acknowledged that he based the design of this, you know, this sinister, tall, lanky being in a, in a black suit and black tie on the tall man. Mm, I didn't know Even that. the name, the Slenderman, the tall man. Mm. So skipping forward uh, to the end uh, of the, the Russian bootleg translated version uh this is the scene you know right at the end after mike has has woken to find it was all a dream and reggie's told him to go and get his gear together because they're going to leave when the sun comes up so mike's gone up to his bedroom i don't need to explain this you know the scene i'm talking about (laughs) mike peered and his heart skipped a beat on the opposite wall just behind him was a jacket the black and above him a human face gleamed long's face here it says maya's legs gave way i think that might be a glitch in the software Mm. i think it should be mike's legs gave way he did not understand how he managed to turn his back to the closet and with this unforgotten talk fall the long man looked him straight in the eyes with a grin sleep boy a lying voice mike backed away His back touched the cabinet door. That's it. Now he will wake up or... The clinking of glass drowned out the strumming of a distant guitar. A terrible, inhuman voice thundered. 
your own mirror shattered, and because of it they leaned out, grabbing the numb mic by the shoulders and throat, slimy brown hands of dwarves. Sleep and Java always walk next to each other. End of the first book. What does Sleep and Java always walk next to each I other? Don't it's Lynchian. It's, it's so Lynchian. Yeah. You can imagine <laughs> that being said backwards in the Red Room. The giant saying. Yeah. Or even just that, you know, uh, we are like the dreamer that lives inside a dream, <laughs> you know. Um, but th- even that Sleep and Java, it's Java, that's me. <laughs> Freudian slip there about the uh, Star Wars similarities. Um that sleep and Java always walk next to each other. It reminds me of, of the, the section you read from the opening about, was it life and, and death mm. walking side by side? Bizarre. What what does he mean by Java? I mean, I the obvious thought is coffee. Yeah. But is it like stimulants and, and, and weariness? It's interesting. Because uh, Mike is kind of on the cusp between dreaming. Yeah. And, you know, is he still dreaming? Yeah. Is this real? It's so bizarre. I also love the way uh, it says something like your mirror shatters yeah. and the uncanniness of that. You yeah. kind of, you read it and you're sat in front of the mirror yeah. and I expected the mirror to shatter because reading something <laughs> in the second person you never get and it makes it really spooky. It's yeah. cool. And I think it's just a grammatical slip yes, in the software, is, but yeah. you're right. It gives it this, funnily enough, this nightmarish quality, mm. which is so phantasm. And that idea, you know, we talked about the appeal to me of this of this lost novelization being that it contained extra scenes that i didn't know about but you know it, it it's a everybody agrees even don agrees that the the 3 hour phantasm cut didn't work <laughs> and i think that you know not only did trimming a lot of those extra scenes shift the focus just to be about the relationship between these two brothers which is the heart of the film but it also removes a lot of context and as mm. we've as we've discussed uh, previously on the podcast that it kind of throws narrative structure out of the window but that only adds to the the disjointed surrealist charm of it i think when i was a kid and we first watched it I didn't even notice that the narrative structure was all over the place because I did that thing that I think you do when you're a kid. You fill in the blanks, you don't do you? fill so in the blanks, yeah. yeah. And it wasn't that different to a lot of the dreams I'd had when I was younger and because the illness had night terrors. So I was kind of familiar with a sort of dream logic. And if it had been sold to me in such a way that um, if if you'd said oh, this makes no sense, it's all over the place, it's like a work of art more than a movie, I probably would have thought, what is this bullshit? Yeah. <laughs> but to actually not question it and just take it in for what it was, I just filled in the blanks subconsciously without yeah. kind of questioning it. Um, so I, I'm kind of glad I had no context for it. Yeah, I think that's the best way to appreciate mm. it. But just going back to those extra scenes, now... Mm. Nowadays, on most of the DVD and Blu-ray releases, you can watch uh, many of the deleted scenes. And even on YouTube, there's some stuff that isn't on the DVDs. Um, A famous scene of um, uh, Jodie getting Mike drunk uh, and and they they take him to Reggie's ice cream parlor where Reggie's playing guitar on the stage and they lay him out unconscious and just cover cover young mike in ice cream it's <laughs> it's really sweet and funny and silly and it does it, you know they were right to cut out those scenes but it's wonderful to see them especially for someone like me who just like it, it's almost like methadone <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but of course and then 
everybody knows this now, but because there was all this extra footage, they ended up using so much of it in oblivion. Mm. But nevertheless, there is a lot of stuff in the novel that I think it was right not to have it in the film, but for the diehard, it, it's amazing just mm. to immerse yourself in that world and the lives of the Pearson brothers. So I've I've tried to come up with a sort of, uh, not necessarily definitive, but a list here of little wonderful extra things that we get from the novelization ah. and, and therefore from the original screenplay, if there even was a screenplay for Phantasm, it was so, <laughs> you know, ad hoc the, the way it was made at weekends over, you know, two years. So this could be a little treasure trove for people because not everyone still will have access to this exactly. novel. So yeah. and this there is... might be people tuning into this that want to hear all these little... I uh, hope so, because this is the bits. stuff that I was desperate for and I thought, I wish someone would write a blog post or do a podcast explaining <laughs> exactly what's in the novelization that I can't get hold of. Um, so first off, after the, uh, the opening uh, graveyard sex scene, y- you can tell that uh, Kate went on to be a romance novelist. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then we get uh, a scene that isn't in the film at all. It's pre-funeral, because of course in the, in the movie we go straight from Tommy's murder to uh, a funeral. hell of a way to end a trio. Mm. Um, and it's, it's what's interesting straight away at the start of chapter two, we get the cuda screeched down the main street of China Grove and came to a stop in front of the bank. China Grove. The town is called mm. China Grove. For years, I thought the town was called Morningside. Yeah, I've always assumed it was called Morningside. And even in, in just to confuse things even more, in Phantasm 2, when we begin with Mike in the asylum, the sign outside says Morningside Asylum. <laughs> so it must be a place. Mm. Perhaps it's, a, it's a, a, a part of the town known as Morningside. Yeah. Uh, but no, I think Morningside, at least going back to that original film is literally just the name of the funeral parlor but i love that china grove there's that line after um they've got tommy uh dwarf tommy in in the car and they ring reggie to come and get them and he says uh, we're in colton in the groves mm. and i don't know why but that always gave me chills and i think because of the way it's shot i think because it was probably filmed in a garage but <laughs> i think they're on a set and there's just this you can see the car the headlights of the car and the, the payphone that they're at. But other than that, there's just sort of infinite blackness. <laughs> Again, a perfect example of, sort of the serendipity of Phantasm, that it should be bad, but it just looks gorgeous and bizarre and kind of terrifying. And, and the fact that they're in the groves. It sounds like a Lana Del Rey lyric. It really does, doesn't it? Or again, back to Lynch, it makes me think of in the sycamore trees. Mm. I don't know why. So the fact that, that the town is called China Grove, I love that. Also... China Grove, to me, makes me think of uh, a porcelain model, like literally made of China. And so with the dreamlike sort of nature of the whole thing you're watching, the fact that you're in a China Grove, you're in a model, you're in something that's not quite real. You're not standing amongst actual buildings and bricks and mortar. Kind of works for me. I don't know if I'm taking a leap there. I think you've got to take many leaps with Phantasm. Mm. And and even in, in in the antique store, yeah, uh, they have. I think like Chinese dragons and puzzle boxes and things. It's I don't know. I'm I'm overthinking it, but that that's the fun of it, isn't it? Uh, so he's pulled up the car to go into the bank, uh, and then we realise that uh, unlikely though it seems from the sitting here at midnight drinking doseki on the porch, Jody, that we know from the film. Uh, Jody Pearson actually owns a bank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a surprise. Yeah, even though it's run effectively uh by mr norby the, the bank manager uh and uh and, and we learn i think that 
Mike and Jody's parents were quite well off because their dad owned the local bank and then when when their parents died it was left to them so it kind of explains how the Pearson brothers are able to live without either of them seeming to have a job yeah I always wonder how they had a housekeeper yeah. as well even <laughs> though in the film I didn't realize the decades that she was the housekeeper I had no because idea she who appears Myrtle was, yeah. with no context but in the book she features again more. yeah it explains who Myrtle is in the book um um but yeah, they've got a housekeeper, they've got a really big house, they've got an incredibly fancy car. Um, and But that kind of ties into another aspect of Phantasm that a lot of people don't talk about. And it, it, it's almost, it feels almost taboo to say it because every time we talk about Phantasm, we rightly talk about loss and grief and, and fear of mortality and Mike's terror that, that Jody will leave. And, and that is right. But in terms of the loss and the grief, I'm not saying Mike isn't grieving his parents, but there's something of a young boy's fantasy about it. Mm. It makes me think of something like Home Alone or Big, and that idea you're a young boy and suddenly your parents aren't around anymore and you can do whatever you like. Mm. And of course this is all a teenage boy's dream, because he doesn't... I know it, it. it's set in summer, so maybe there's that line that Reggie says the kids have just got out of summer school. Maybe it's the summer holidays, but Mike doesn't seem to go to school. Mm. He's got a motorbike. <laughs> He's allowed to drive a muscle car. He drinks beer. He does whatever he want and wants and goes wherever he wants and he hangs out with his cool older brother who plays guitar in a band i mean that's the dream and and you know the the real existential dread for mike is i think is the fear that that jody is going to leave him mm. uh but then of course i and this is me i've always wondered now is this lazy writing uh because mike's parents died in a car crash but then at the end when you find out that jody is dead we're told he also died in a car crash. Mm. So does everybody in China Grove drive recklessly? <laughs> or did Jody and his mum and dad all die in a car, the same car accident mm. when Mike wasn't there? And Mike's dream, you know, in, in the real world, Mike's an orphan and Reggie's taking care of him like at the end of the film. But in his dreams, his fantasy is that his brother survived mm. and he is, is, is the caretaker. And uh, just going back to episode one, um, I asked Mary Wilde to join me to discuss the philosophy of Phantasm because of a wonderful segment she had uh, on the uh, Evolution of Horror podcast. And you listened to that at the same time as I did. Mm. And you sent me a message. You said, oh, my God, th this this quote of Mary's, it really struck a chord with me. And I think it explains why Phantasm means so much to so many people and especially kind of young boys who were the age we were when we watched it kids are innately hardwired to attach themselves to caretakers, which is critical to the ability to form interpersonal relationships later in life. Whether real or perceived, childhood abandonment interferes with forming attachments and negatively impacts future relationships. Usually, perceived abandonment happens before children are old enough to understand that they are not responsible for others' actions. In that case, children often falsely believe that they are flawed, unlovable, and responsible for the caretaker's absence. And what really struck me, and in many ways, this was the catalyst for making me want to start this podcast and have ridiculously long and in-depth conversations about phantasm. And I can't believe I didn't even mention this in my conversation with Mary in episode one. But if you discount Tommy's death in the first scene, which isn't witnessed by anyone. Yeah, that's the catalyst that starts Mike's discovery of, of what's going on at Morningside. 
but the first person that Mike sees murdered in front of him is the caretaker. Ah, yes. And in that sort of uh, Twin Peaks kind of way, where you have these archetypal characters like the fireman and the woodsman. I thought, again, it's that serendipitous genius almost or profundity and i'm not saying that was deliberate but you've got you know don coscarelli this young man writing this horror film with these themes of mortality and uh, with this orphan protagonist and and that that idea that it's hardwired in in us to fear the death of our caretakers Mm. and that the first person the, the tall man, I know it's the sphere, but, you know, the sphere is the servant of the tall man. The tall man takes away the caretaker and Mike has to watch him die and then flee from this Grim mm. Reaper figure. I just think that's fantastic. Um, but, yeah, so I always wondered about, is it Mike's fantasy about having a caretaker figure, but it, it not being the parent figure because again like I discussed with Mary, the tall man is kind of, he's the patriarchy, he's the man, whereas Jody is He's a rock and roll musician. He's mm. sticking it to the man. But that was one of the things I thought was quite sad about the book was that Mike doesn't like the fact that Jody is a, is a musician. I don't no, know if you remember that true. scene. Um, it's the, the, the gorgeous uh, sitting here at midnight scene on the porch where, you know, Reg and Jody are strumming their guitars. And it's it's told from Mike's point of view. He's in his bedroom and he says, oh, he hates yeah. it when Jody's strumming guitar. That kind of jarred at me I know, reading this like... because I find that scene so cozy and comforting and warm. Yeah. Uh, kind of like, whoa, what are you doing? You, you're messing up the I classics. I know, I know. <laughs> but it makes complete sense because yeah. that music, you know, I've said elsewhere that Mike fears that sex is the thing that will take Jodie away. But in a more immediate sense, you know, Jodie's been out... bloody Rolling Stones. Yeah, he's been out rhodium for the Rolling Stones, yeah. which again, I think I always inferred from the fact that he wears the Rolling Stones t-shirt mm. and the, the friend of theirs says, oh, you know, he you been out on the road. But I think it's only in the novelization that it actually confirms that he was a roadie for the Rolling Stones, wasn't it? I think the Rolling Stones, as bands go as well, were one of the sort of countercultural acts that were kind of seen as being um, somehow in league with devil worship. And, yeah, you know, they've sympathy got for the devil. For the devil, of course. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder if... Um, you know, they're sort of a representation oh. of that kind of, that little death as well. Yeah, and again, like, you know, China Grove is this idyllic, uh, it makes me think that monkey song, Pleasant Valley Sunday, mm. it's small town America, and the Rolling Stones are not that. No. Well, they weren't, anyway. But uh, just to go on off a tangent, uh, that was another thing, I've talked about the many reasons this film appealed to me and still continues to appeal all these decades later. But another thing that, that really, you know, struck with me when I first watched it was that that the characters in it you know Reggie Mike and Jody they're all right not so much Mike but you know they've got long hair they wear jeans they play guitar they're in a band they're cool and when we were you know when we were teenagers when we were growing up in the sort of mid to late 90s um boys of our age from the area we lived in they all wore tracksuits mm. and they all had like very closely cropped hair and we wore jeans and played guitars listened to rock music and had long hair and i felt like <laughs> oh they're, they're they're us they're, they're like, oh, you know i really felt this kinship with them they were relatable as well in a way that you know courtney cox in scream wasn't because american yeah, horror movies yeah, yeah. of our era were all populated entirely by rich kids who mm. seemed to not only be american 
but also operate on a different kind of social platform to what we did. So yeah. their lives were kind of glamorized and you could watch them and uh, well, not aspire to be them because most of them ended up <laughs> yeah. dead. But there wasn't a way to kind of relate to them. Whereas Jodie and Mike and Reggie are very relatable. Yeah. And I don't know if that's just us or know, even though they're every man sort of uh, status. <laughs> yeah, about no, them, I know exactly what you mean. To. And I think, but you know, they, they have got money because, like we say, mm, Jodie well, owns a bank. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but, but it didn't seem like that in the no. film. The fact they had that big house and a housekeeper yeah. always seemed incongruous in the film. Yes, they yeah, didn't seem right. like they should have money, or they didn't seem like. But again, they were is, a different kind yeah. of social sphere. Is it Mike's dream? Well, true. How yeah. much of what we're seeing is real, and like in his idealized world, where <laughs> this sounds crass, but his parents died, but his cool older brother survives, <laughs> who drives a muscle car and plays guitar. Um, did he also inherit? thousands if not millions of dollars mm. how much of that is real just going back to the music a second uh we're recording this in mark's house mm. and i've i brought lots of gear here with me uh, and i needed an extra bag so purely serendipitously i bought my morningside funeral home and cemetery bag <laughs> with me and it what i just picked it up it was just the first bag to hand and it just so happened to be a phantasm bag and it had just a load of old stuff that i'd shoved in there not again, not deliberately. And I was emptying out this bag in order to fill it with recording gear to bring here. And because I'm a hoarder, there were cassette tapes in this bag. Now, I swear to God, I've thrown away most of my analog media. I promise. <laughs> I still have all my Phantasm VHS tapes, you know, from my cold dead hands. Um, and I have about 10 cassette tapes left that I, I keep for nostalgic reasons. Now, I found this. Now, the cassette itself is long gone. But the case remains. And I don't know why I've got it, because it's something that I made for you and gave to you in 1999. Uh, and I apologize to the listeners, because I'm about to show Mark something <laughs> that you can't see, but we'll describe it to you. It's a cassette tape that God knows how it ended up in my house. And God knows how it ended up in my Morningside bag. But I remember this so well. <laughs> I, you know, even before you'd show me what this was, I knew what you were going to yeah. show me. And I remember this homemade cover and the track listing. And I've no idea how you've ended up no. with this. And I've no idea how I don't have it yeah. anymore. It's, it's a, I wish... a phantasm mixtape. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with some of your own titles, yeah. I think. Like the first track's called Inauguration of the Mechanical Dwarf. <laughs> um, phantasm theme... Baby Left Me Blue. So See, I always thought Sitting Here yeah. at Midnight was called Baby Left Me Blue because of this cassette. Yeah, and I've credited it to Reggie Bannister. Oh. The song is written by, uh, um, I was about to call him Jody. His name's not Jody, <laughs> it's Bill Thornbury. He's one of the few Phantasm <laughs> actors who uh, isn't <laughs> named, who doesn't have the same name as his character. Um, yeah, it's funny because you'd think I was exactly the kind of child that would sit and scrutinize the credits. So it's surprising that I didn't know initially that it was called Sitting Here at Midnight. But uh, Bill, I I apologize for <laughs> for not crediting you accordingly on a mixtape I made in 1999. Oh, this is wonderful. I, I wish I'd kept every cassette you'd ever made me. Oh, um, yeah. I know I know there was one I left in Edinburgh and I was absolutely gutted there was a cassette player in a place I was staying at uh, with my family when I went on holiday and you made me this tape and I left it in the cassette player oh, in Scotland. Oh no, that's the worst. And this is 21 years ago because I was 15 <laughs> at the time and I wish I could just go back yeah. to that apartment oh, and get my. it. But to summon this phantasm cassette, yeah. where must it be? Here's another mystery, you see. We've got an empty <laughs> case with a homemade phantasm cover 
but no cassette inside. Well, I mentioned the old uh, VCR to VCR pirating system. Mm. My dad also had like a big hi-fi uh, and on the tape deck, it had phono inputs. Mm. So you could you, you could get a SCART lead. I was about to say for any younger listeners, there are probably no people <laughs> under 40 listening to a podcast about Phantasm, but I hope there are because um, it's timeless and it's beautiful as we've, as we've established. Um, but... Yeah, you could get a, a SCART cable is basically what plugged into the back of a video player to hook it up to your telly before streaming, if you can imagine <laughs> such a thing. Um, and you could get one that had sort of phono outputs as well. So you could basically, you could run audio cables from out the back of your VCR player into a tape deck. So I did, I remember it so well, sitting meticulously for hours. Because this I didn't own the Phantasm soundtrack. This mm. was me, you know, uh, pause and record at certain moments of the film to get snippets oh, yes. of the score and the, the the homemade cover i've made for this cassette that i made for mark it was actually i saw online uh very exciting they'd announced that phantasm was being released on laser disc <laughs> i didn't even know what laser disc was <laughs> I, uh, think I still do know I print, what laser disc is i printed is. off this sort of black and white pixelated cover of of the laser disc <laughs> box and i've i've scribbled out some bits of it in black marker pen and written soundtrack underneath <laughs> but it's a sphere with a reflection of the tall man surrounded by gravestones in it and it's even got the a very blurry mgm logo at the top oh. i'll post a picture of it it's, it's wonderful I've, you know what this was yours i made this for you so you can have it back i was going to ask i thought <laughs> is it sacrilege no but- no I actually, I, I mean, I know there's no cassette in here, but I actually do have a cassette player in the shed. And it's one of those I'm, kind of ones that was part of a hi-fi system. So if I had the right cassette... I'm going to make phono that for you again. We could gonna potentially find, actually record yeah. it direct from the DVDs. I'm, I'm going to do it. It's, it's going to happen. <laughs> I... I we probably shouldn't give my address on here because now <laughs> everyone will be wanting to know where the cassette player and the shed are. <laughs> no, they'll be wanting to know where the Russian bootleg is, surely. <laughs> anyway, that was a, a bit of a digression there. But um, back to things in the in the novelization that that, uh, that aren't in the film or clear up things in the film. And another, when Jody's in the bank, he speaks to uh, the security guard called Ralph. Uh, and he says, how come your little brother's allowed to drive without a license? <laughs> uh, and Jody says, sort of rather flippantly, um, he says, well, you know, uh, the sheriff knows I'll confiscate his yacht if we put... Maybe it's not. You know what? I'm going to check that. Uh, but basically, he implies that the sheriff owes them money. <laughs> <laughs> camper, that's it. Besides, the sheriff's af- afraid I'll repossess his camper or his boat or his squad car. <laughs> so the, the, again, in that sort of a young boy's fantasy thing, there's this idea that... Um, uh, Mike and Jody are sort of above the law, but I like that fact. It gives an explanation as to why this thirteen-year-old boy is 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 racing around in a, in a muscle car, and also why they don't they they plan to go to the sheriff at one point, but how the police are never really involved in Phantasm. It's a quite a neat explanation. It's good, yeah. Uh, there's more Sally and Susie, although I must admit not as much as I hoped. I mm. I'd, I'd read like obviously, um, I, as I said, next episode. Zowie and I will be talking about phantasm and feminism when we're talking about sort of uh, sort of represent female representation or lack thereof mm. in the phantasm films and sort of gender stereotypes and gender roles and what have you. Uh, and I'd read, you know, obviously this is a very male franchise written and directed by a man. And, and obviously this novelization is written by a woman. And I'd read that um, 
there was more Sally and Susie in this book and that and that Kate had fleshed them out a bit more and made them three-dimensional characters. Uh, I think it's safe to say that they are one-dimensional characters in the film itself, but I was slightly disappointed with that aspect. There's not a great deal more Sally and Susie. Um, it establishes the fact that Jodie and Susie are in a relationship or sort mm. of on-again, off-again relationship. Uh, um, but then I, I think I knew that somehow. Um, but then it troubled me that uh, Jodie was so willing to cheat on her with the Lady in Lavender. But even that's explained in the novelization that... Um, and in a strange way, it's weirdly sweet. And a lot of people... Uh, not me because I was I was a massive goth growing up, but probably because I watched too much Phantasm as a teenager, and was obsessed with, with with graveyards and and whatnot. Um, but a lot of people find the you know what why why is Jodie going out and uh, um, having sex with girls in graveyards? That's creepy and weird. But there is actually a bit in the novelization where Jodie kind of uh, I think Susie's arguing with him like what why do we never. Uh, well, to, to be blunt, to be crash, she's complaining she's never seen him naked. So because mm-hmm. we always make out in your car. Uh, <laughs> we're never at home. Why do you never bring me home? And I find it actually quite sweet that Jody doesn't want to bring girls home because that's Mike's, you know, that's his safe space. And he, he wants to be that caretaker. He wants to be the, the responsible father figure. Is it because this is Mike's dream? And Mike well, can't yeah. imagine what it's like to bring a girl home or to see his brother naked. Yeah. So in his version of that story, he can't Ooh, let that happen. How interesting. So it has to take place yeah. kind of closeted in the car. Yeah. And everything has to be literally under wraps a little bit. That's really interesting, yeah. Um, and but yeah, back to the novel. There's this frustration from Susie. You know, we never go any proper dates. You know, you never bring me home. If you don't take me out, I'll go out with. But he's he's got a silly name like Billy Wilkerson or something. <laughs> I can't remember the guy's name. Um, I, I picture him. I think it describes him as being kind of a, a big lad. And I picture <laughs> Sam from Lord of the Rings, <laughs> like a nice wholesome oh, guy who's not cool or, um, like Jody. But... What what's the character that that Samwise plays in Stranger Things? Bob. Bob. Yeah, yeah Bob. <laughs> She's gonna go out with maybe Bob Bobby Wilkerson, isn't it? It is Bobby Wilkerson. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, imagine. <laughs> You know, Sean Astin. We need some time travel, but Sean Astin <laughs> as Bobby Wilkerson in the phantasm scene that never was. Jodie's love rival. Cinema's loss. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he he actually Jodie decides to go and take out Susie uh, and treat her right. But he gets there and she's already gone. He's missed mm. the boat. She's gone off with Bobby Wilkerson. So he's in a mood. So that's why he's at the bar and ends up being seduced by the lady in lavender. So yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. Uh, and, and another thing that I, I liked in the novelization uh, was that, that there's there's a throwaway line. Well, I say throwaway. Not really. There, there's a line in the film where Jodie says to the friend when Mike's uh, under the car, fixing the alternator or whatever it is um that uh i'm thinking of sending him off to live with his aunt mm. and a lot of people are, are quick to say what a bastard jody is because of that but again i've always wondered how much of it is mike's paranoia he, he's under a car and jody's talking to this friend is he assuming that's what he's mm. saying i don't know maybe i'm giving jody the benefit of the doubt uh, but the aunt's never really mentioned, but she is mentioned quite prominently yeah. in the book. And Mike goes to see her. And there's the the weird thing she did. She have a son who died, Patso, or is he away in the army or something? I couldn't quite tell. Yeah, it was. Oh, you're getting to be as big as Patso mm. now. You get uh, a little description of her. Aunt Belle was an attractive little woman. 
who put blonde colouring on her hair to hide the grey and denied she did it. She dressed in a pink cotton dress and had tied a pink chiffon scarf at her neck to hide the wrinkles. And I discovered something about Aunt Belle only very recently. Uh, now, you know, uh, and anyone who's listened to A Book at Breakfast will know that I'm fascinated by the concepts of the triple goddess. Mm. Uh, and I was chatting to Zowie the other day we were talking about phantasm, and we were talking about. <laughs> you're talking I about. know, I know. No, I like other things as well. I like uh, phantasm Russian novelizations, completely <laughs> different thing. Uh, I like phantasm mixtapes. Uh, I like drinking Doseki beer. Mm. You know. <laughs> Lots of varied interests here. I also enjoy the music of Bill Thornbury. Have you have you heard of him? <laughs> no, I no. haven't. No, I've only. I, I only really like Reggie Bannister. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> Where was I? Uh, we were talking about uh, our favourite character, the fortune teller, and how mm. intriguing and mysterious she is. But, but I said, but it, it, what intrigues me is I said that the fortune teller is the archetypal crone and her granddaughter, Sarah. That's another thing we know from the novelization. the granddaughter's, the fortune teller's granddaughter's name is Sarah. Mm. Um, oh, and even the fortune teller has a name. She's Mrs. Star. Mm. Which, uh, personally, I prefer the mystery of her just being the fortune teller. <laughs> but anyway, um, I said that you've got the crone and you've got the maiden, but where's the mother? In that, I feel that there, there's another element to to the. You know, I, I strongly feel that they're two um, embodiments of, of of the triple goddess entity. Is that you know, there's that witchy vibe in the fortune teller's cottage. Um, I say cottage because I've got witches on the brain. It's not really a cottage, but you know, and. Uh, I found out just the other day that, that there were scenes with Aunt Belle shot. Oh, right. And see if you can guess which actress played Aunt Belle. This woman with grey hair who dyes it blonde. Was it Mary Ellen Shaw? It was. Oh, my God. The fortune teller herself. Now, of course, we know like <laughs> Don likes to recycle players, as they call them in the credits. I love that. That's very <laughs> romantic. I like that. And Mary Ellen Shaw was in Kenny and Company, as was Reggie Bannister and Michael Baldwin and uh, Doug, the bartender. Um, and even the caretaker was the coach in Kenny and Company. So I don't know how much we can literally read into it, it literally read into this. But I love the idea that maybe the fortune teller and the ant are the same person. Mm. And also, and again, that you, in, in the novel... Makes me think of in Boneland with the, exactly. the therapist yeah. um, and Susan potentially being the same person and the Morrigan. Yes, I mentioned this in my uh, discussion with Kevin Lyons mm. in episode three, uh, a novel that Mark and I discussed on a book at breakfast called Boneland, which has this very sort of phantasm-esque quality in terms of n not quite knowing what's a dream and what's real mm. and how much of it is in the protagonist's head. Um, yeah, and um, you know, maybe it's just me as ever reading too much into it, but I, I really like that little bit of trivia. And, and and again, it's something that Zowie and I will talk about in in the next episode. That idea that um, you know there aren't many female characters in Phantasm, but you get this brilliant fortune teller, and this idea that there's this kind of unspoken communication between the fortune teller and Sarah, and that they know things that Mike doesn't know. And in the scene. In the book with Aunt Belle, she knows things that Mike doesn't know. Mm. And it's quite tragic, you know. Um, I, I said that in the film, I like to think that um, Mike might be imagining the fact that Jodie is, is, is shipping him off to live with his aunt. But it's confirmed here 
she says, I'll fix up Patso's old room for you. My, it will be so nice to have a man in the house after all these years of being alone. What, what did you say? He barely managed to utter the words, for his heart was so still, it felt as though it may never start again. I said I'd fix it up. She stopped and continued. Didn't Jody tell you? Her head began shaking in exasperation. He promised me he would. No, he didn't tell me anything. Why, that boy, he's so irresponsible. You'll be better off when he's gone. She continued to tidy the table. Gone? Where's he going? Getting carried away with her mopping, Aunt Belle now had one of Mike's hands and was wiping it with a dish rag. Heaven knows. He just came in here the other day and said he'd be leaving soon and asked me if it would be all right if you came to stay with me. It's so sad that he finds out that way. But again, like, Aunt Belle has that in common with the fortune teller. She knows things that he doesn't know. Uh, and Kate Coscarelli knows things that we don't know mm. or didn't know about Phantasm. And again, just to reiterate, that was the real thrill of finally getting hold of this Holy Grail book. Holy that, of Holies. Holy of Holies, yeah. Um, and that idea that it was as close as I could get to seeing like a Phantasm screenplay or a Morningside mm. screenplay. It was the original working title. I've mentioned elsewhere on the podcast... Um, about finally getting to see Phantasm on the big screen. Uh, Which I had the good fortune to yes, accompany you for. I know. It was um, it was so last minute, I remember sort of ringing you in a panic. And, <laughs> London, Don Coscarelli, Phantasm! Ah! <laughs> and yeah, you thankfully, you didn't think I was completely mad. And <laughs> we, we got uh, got some cheap train tickets stayed at a very interesting hotel on the outskirts of London. Yeah, I think that hotel was a, a casualty of the pandemic. The, it is with us plague. no more. Oh. It, the tall yeah. man has come to take yeah. it to the hotel mausoleum. <laughs> He's crushed it down. It's <laughs> a, a tiny, tiny hotel. <laughs> tiny little B&B. It's a tent now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, at that screening, Dom was there. It was amazing. He was sat behind us as we were watching Phantasm in the dark. It was perfect. A more perfect evening could not have been had. Uh, and there was a little Q&A at the end. Mm. And I don't know if you remembered, I sort of eagerly asked Don about the novelization. I said, I read these sample chapters in 2002 yeah, I and do. I have to know what happens next. <laughs> and I said, are there any plans to reprint the novelization? And he was, he was, he was really sweet, actually. He said no, but he said, um, I'm really glad you brought that up because mm. writing was always my mother's passion, but she'd never been able to dedicate herself to it and then phantasm gave her the opportunity to write this novelization which kind of you know it's launched her her career and i think she was you know she was probably in her 50s by that point it really was a kind of you know uh, in, in that new stage of her life taking on this completely different direction and being really successful with it so i think you know he seemed really really pleased that i'd asked about it and quite mm. quite touched although he did say that there were no plans to re-release it in print or digitally so i'd say if you can get a hold of this, if you can get hold of a copy of this book, it's definitely one for the diehard fans. I wouldn't recommend it to the casual reader <laughs> unless they're a fan of Garth Marenghi. Um, and it, it is hard to get hold of. I say there are only 500 in existence, but it's, it's a gorgeous, it's a tiny, tiny book. As I say, it's printed deliberately in the style of the sort of pulp 70s uh, paperback novelizations. Uh, and it has uh, black and white stills from the movie throughout the book. And it's just, it's a wonderful, wonderful little thing. Uh, but if you can't get the book, get yourself a copy of The Russian Bootleg. Mm. That's not how to get hold of either, but it tends to go for, <laughs> it's slightly more affordable if you can find <laughs> one than the um, 
<laughs> than the 2002 English version. And I'm, well, I'm really intrigued by, I didn't get round uh, to translating uh, any of book two, well, Phantasm two. Mm. I really want to know who translated that and who wrote it in yeah. the first place. I'd look, but it's quite a chore. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Trying to scan every page and translate it. You know what? It might be easier for me to just learn Russian. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, when all's said and done, there is no substitute for the film. So, Mark, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to discuss the novelization and the film itself with me. I'm so glad, um, not only that we were able to share that film together, but that we both got to watch it at 13. Yeah, me too. It is the definitive age to be discovering horror movies, I think, as you've alluded to before. But And... I don't know if you remember talking of my um, bootleg mixtape. I did actually make you a copy of, of Phantasm on VHS. Yes. Uh, and it was <laughs> much like this novelization. Uh, I, I did. I gave you a VHS with Phantasm 1 and 2 back to back. Literally back to back. Because I don't know if you remember. Uh, I was a bit of a wizard with the, with the pause button in those days. <laughs> and when I'm recording from one VCR to another... Uh, the exact moment where Mike sees the tall man in the mirror at the end of the film, boy, I switched it for, for the recap at the start of Phantasm 2. So Phantasm 1 didn't end and it literally went straight into the second film. I which wish in, I still had that. Yeah, you probably do somewhere uh. in an old drawer, uh, which in hindsight is a terrible idea. because you I don't. Just, it's like <laughs> the Doctor Who abridged yeah. episodes where you don't get the cliffhangers. Yeah. Um, but I was very proud of it at the time. Oh. Seamless it was. But the thing I'm still proud of in hindsight, there, there was a great image. Again, I just printed it off. Um, I think it was bloody disgusting. Uh, there was an article there about Phantasm 1999, <laughs> this exciting sequel uh, penned by um, Roger Avery. But we'll talk more about that later in the podcast. Um, and there was a great promotional image. I think it was actually from Phantasm 3. It was the sort of three-pronged gold sphere with the tall man's silhouette uh, in in were reflected in in the ball and it just said phantasm above it in that gorgeous sort of arched psychedelic font and i printed it off in a way you know some uh vhs covers uh were landscape mm. rather than portrait i had a great x rental terminator yeah. 2 with a landscape cover and i printed it and slid it into this vhs uh case in such a way that it said phantasm on the spine of the video yes, but if you I tilted it that. you had this gold sphere with the tall oh. man in my greatest creative achievement to this day <laughs> i think but anyway um before i let you go you've been listening to the podcast you know it is customary i'm afraid for me to ask you a random question from killian h gore's um unauthorized phantasm quiz book what is the type of car owned by jody a well, plim- Sorry. Oh, it's multiple choice. Don't <laughs> okay, worry. Okay, okay. A, a Plymouth Barracuda, B, an Oldsmobile Delta, C, a Plymouth Fury, or D, a Chevy Nova. I think it's a Plymouth Barracuda. Yeah, you know <laughs> that's a, that's an easy one because it the the car is is almost synonymous with the films. But mm. you know, I'm not into the uh, I'm not as into the cars as as many viewers. And I thought that you you're probably not either. And I thought you know what he might have slipped his mind. But no, no, you were you were on the ball. I, unless you give me the multiple choice, I wouldn't have known it was a Plymouth Barracuda. So. I think I only know that from uh, from documentaries and things. I think mm. they just call it the Cuda. The Cuda, um, yeah. I didn't understand that for years. There's a line in um, 
in Oblivion where Reggie says, I've got the coup de stashed a mile away, meaning that the car is hidden nearby. And I, I didn't know what a coup de stashed mean. I meant. thought, I, I knew that it was stashed, but I thought it was like a weapon stash. <laughs> <laughs> and similarly, in, in, in uh, the first Phantasm, when Mike rescues Jody from Morningside, uh, but he can't tell who's in the car at first. And Mike says, goddamn door latch, as in that the door had jammed. And I used to think he was saying, get in, coolatch. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, like, coolatch, like, get in, daddy-o. I don't know. <laughs> right, what a note to end it in. Anyway, mm. anyway right, get out, coolatch. So, Mark, obviously people uh, can hear more from you on A Book at Breakfast, uh, but uh, where else can they find you and your stuff? I guess kind of appropriately, because we've been talking about music in this episode, mm. music is my probably my greatest passion. Um, your little and... brother doesn't feel that way. <laughs> I'm only joking, he doesn't yeah. have a little brother. <laughs> yeah, we don't talk about Mike. Um <laughs> Yeah, so um, you can find me if you search the Mark Charlesworth on Spotify or Apple Music or wherever you get your music from. You can even buy good old-fashioned CDs of mine on Bandcamp at markcharlesworth.bandcamp.com. But you don't have custom-made cassettes, so I'm, I'm just not interested, <laughs> I'm afraid. That's fantastic. Thank you once again. A pleasure. Thank you. So there we have it, the long-lost phantasm novelization by Kate Coscarelli. It was truly a pleasure to discuss that book with my Book at Breakfast co-host, Mark Charlesworth. If you like hearing us chat about books, then uh, subscribe to A Book at Breakfast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Book at Breakfast. Uh, coming up later this year, if you like spooky books, we've got episodes on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. But enough of that. Books you don't need. A fucking four-barrel shotgun, that's more like it. So join me next week when Zowie Swan will be returning to Morningside FM to discuss phantasm and feminism in the meantime make sure you're following morningside fm on instagram at phantasm pod because over the next few days i'll be posting some uh, photos of the gorgeous artwork that accompanies that bizarre russian bootleg of the novel see you soon